I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we want everybody to be able to follow along. So we have some guys that are going to fill the aisles here. And they're going to make their way to the back. They've got some Bibles in hand. And if you'll just get their attention, they'll get one of those Bibles to you. And those are marked at Romans chapter 8. So you can follow the passage at which we'll be looking. Romans chapter 8. We're here to celebrate a genuine miracle. That one who was dead in a tomb for three days, not merely that his heart stopped beating and he was brought back shortly thereafter, but one who was dead beyond resuscitation came back to life. Now that's a miracle by any definition, and we're all here to celebrate it. But I wonder, do you really believe it? Because, you see, it's one thing for us to participate in the trappings of Easter. The baskets and the bunnies and the eggs. I'll not bore you with the origin of all of that. But I'll only say that just as Santa Claus and reindeer and elves have nothing to do with Jesus' birth, rabbits and eggs have nothing to do with Jesus' resurrection. And one of the things that kind of goes with the package is to attend church on Easter Sunday. And I'm very, very, very glad that all of you have and that you've chosen to attend here on this special day. But I think you would agree it's quite possible to participate without believing. So I ask you, and this is rhetorical, so just to answer to yourself, do you believe in the miracle that is central to this celebration? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was dead but is now alive? And the passage I've asked you to turn to in Romans 8 indicates that there are those who believe it and those who don't. Please read with me, beginning in verse 9. You are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, Even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now, when that passage uses the phrases realm of the flesh and realm of the spirit, It's speaking of people in two different categories, those who belong to Christ and those who do not. And that's why the end of verse 9 says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So the question is, how does one receive the spirit and so belong to Christ? Well, the Bible says this about that. You received the spirit by believing what you heard. And that's why I asked whether you believe the central miracle of this celebration, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's my hope and prayer that if you do not already, then by the end of our time together, you will. Let's ask God to help us as we look at his word. Father, we thank you again for this blessed day and what it represents. I thank you for each person here who in your good providence... You have allowed to be here for a divine appointment with your truth. Help us now to focus our attention on that truth. 
And we ask you, God, the Holy Spirit, to move on hearts, to bring people from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we have an outline for you at the back of your program. So I encourage you to take a look at that so that you can follow along with what I'm going to say. And I have two major points there. The first is this, that you have reasons to believe in Jesus. You have reasons to believe in Jesus. And the first reason to believe in Jesus is that, I say in your outline, you already believe in God. You have reasons to believe in Jesus. And the truth is, you already believe in God. Now, of course, I don't know everyone here. And so how can I say with confidence you believe in God? Well, it's because you were made by God and you were made to know God. In fact, the Bible tells us this. God has set eternity in the human heart. And God has given ample and unmistakable evidence of his existence in creation. And so the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And even in this book that we're looking at, the book of Romans, it speaks to that as well. We hold your finger just in Romans chapter eight and turn back a few pages to chapter one. Romans chapter one and verse 19 says this. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. It's because of this unmistakable proof of God's existence that the Bible says something as startling as this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, when the Bible speaks of fools and foolishness, it's not referring to ignorance or lack of intelligence. It's not saying that one does not know about God's existence. In fact, the foolishness is found precisely in the fact that they do know. Foolishness in the Bible means failure to use what we know. And what do people do with what they know about God's existence? The end of verse 18 in Romans 1 says they suppress the truth. That is, they hold down, suppress the truth that God has given all around us and that they were made to embrace. And so one has said the atheist can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a policeman. It's because he's not the guy that the atheist wants hanging around. Now, you can turn back to Romans 8 and we'll look at that passage again in a bit. But everybody knows there is a God, but not everybody uses what they know. Many suppress it. Many hold it down. Many refuse to think about it. And so from the Bible standpoint, there is no true philosophical atheist or even agnostic. That is someone who does not know whether God exists. All people were made to know that and do know that even if they foolishly fail to apply it. So you might say that atheists don't believe in God. And God doesn't believe in atheists. The fact that we already believe in God is seen in the fact that those who deny God betray a belief in him, even in their denial. Have you ever heard someone say, or perhaps you said, I don't believe in God because how could God allow wars and poverty and natural disasters and so on? 
But notice that question does not get to whether God exists, but whether or not you like the God who exists. You may not like me and the way I do things, but that doesn't mean I don't exist, though it may mean you wish I didn't. Perhaps some of you have heard of the famous British atheist Richard Dawkins. He's British, and we all know that a British accent adds at least 20 points to your IQ. I mean, Brits just sound smarter. But Dawkins really is smart, and then he sounds smarter because he's got that accent. But he has a real issue with God, and he's very vocal about it. In his book, The God Delusion, he says the God of the Bible is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. In short, God is a moral monster. Now, Richard seems to have an attitude toward God. All the while claiming God doesn't exist. And I ask you, how can you be angry with someone who doesn't exist? And some have summarized this glaring inconsistency on the part of the atheist position this way. Their position is there is no God. And I hate him. In another of his books called The Selfish Gene, Dawkins says, My own feeling is that a human society based simply on the gene's law of universal ruthless selfishness. Let me just stop there. Genes have selfishness, says Dawkins. My own feeling is that a a human society based simply on the genes law of universal ruthless selfishness would be a very nasty society in which to live. But unfortunately, however much we may deplore something, it does not stop it being true. Be warned that if you wish, as I do, to build a society in which individuals cooperate generously and unselfishly towards a common good, you can expect little help from biological nature. Let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we are born selfish. Well, Dawkins is right that we are born selfish. But he defines that problem not as a spiritual issue, since he doesn't believe in the spiritual, but rather as a genetic problem. Genes are, according to Dawkins, selfish, and therefore the title of that book, The Selfish Gene. Now, creation scientist Edgar Andrews who is also British and so has a British accent as well. So he's really smart too. And he responds in his book, written to respond to Dawkins, called Who Made God? He says, what Dawkins doesn't seem to realize is that if his atheism is true, there would be no no moral high ground to occupy. If our world is the product of amoral forces, and if man is simply cosmic flotsam scattered on the shores of time, then morality including Dawkins' longed-for generosity and altruism, simply does not exist. Nothing can be good and nothing evil. Right and wrong are concepts devoid of meaning, and anyone who passes moral judgment dwells not on horror my ground, but in cuckoo land, he says. Dawkins' belief is based on the bizarre assumption that genes somehow possess moral qualities and objectives. In reality, of course, the term selfish gene is no more than shorthand for Darwinian survival of the fittest. But even so, how can an amoral process lead to moral consequences like human selfishness? 
The only consistent account of human nature provided by atheistic evolution is that there is no such thing as moral behavior. All kinds of behavior, good and bad, are simply survival mechanisms in disguise. Suppressing your belief in God leaves you without a basis for right and wrong. Now, it doesn't mean you'll live an especially immoral life. You may be quite moral. It only means that you can't justify why one thing is right and another thing is wrong. And it's not just in the realm of morals that you're left without a place to stand. It's in other places as well. For instance, if you attempt to use logic to make your case to dismiss God, then you're going to need to explain where the laws of logic came from and why they are universal laws at all. From an atheistic or agnostic standpoint, you can't justify the existence of the very logic you use. So you cannot be a consistent philosophical atheist. But you can be, and many of us are, practical atheists. That is, though you were made to know God and we know that God is, he practically makes no difference in our day-to-day lives. It's our hope and prayer today that you'll commit to the God who made you and the living Savior who is your Lord. You have reasons to believe in God, philosophically and practically. And the truth is, you already do believe in God. And, I say in your outline, Jesus is God. You have reasons to believe in Jesus because you already believe in God. And secondly, Jesus is God. On the night before Jesus died, he met with his first followers. And he said this to calm their troubled hearts. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, what an audacious and impossible comparison to make. Just like you believe in God, you should believe in me. (laughs) It's audacious and it's impossible unless he really is God. And that's precisely who Jesus claimed to be. I say in your outline, he claimed to be God. Sometimes you'll hear people say that Jesus himself never claimed to be God. But in John chapter 10, for example, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, you might read those words and think he's not claiming to be God. He's just saying that me and my father are tight. We're close. You might say that about someone with whom you're close. But his opponents, those who heard him speak this, understood what he was saying because they immediately picked up stones to put him to death. Notice their reaction. We are stoning you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus claimed to be God. Further, the Bible teaches throughout that he is God. In one of the four books written about the life of Jesus... When he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, the Gospel of, of John, it opens the very first verse this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, notice that last phrase, the Word was God. And then a few verses down in that same chapter, it tells us this. The Word, this one who was God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's none other than Jesus Christ who came to earth. God became man. God added humanity to what he had already been and always had been 
throughout eternity. And he became the unique person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He claimed to be God. The Bible teaches he is God. And the grand demonstration of that is the third thing that I have in your outline. He rose from the dead. This is the miracle we've gathered to celebrate. But now that you know that you believe in God or have been reminded of that, then the fact that God does on occasion perform something outside normal processes shouldn't surprise you. After all, it's natural for a supernatural being to do supernatural things. Did you all hear that? (laughs) You see, once you believe in a supernatural being, it's natural for him to do supernatural stuff. Now, if he did it all the time, jumping into the natural order to tweak with the machinery, then science would be impossible because we wouldn't know whether our observations in the natural world one day would be true the next. God has invaded the natural order on occasion, but contrary to what many think, miracles were unusual even in the Bible. And God has even promised to allow scientists the assumption that the physical world will have a consistent rhythm to it so that it can be studied with great profit. After God intervened in the natural world in a huge way with a worldwide flood, afterward, he promised this. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. I'm going to allow the natural world to continue. He can jump in anytime he wants, but he's not going to do that so that we can study it and observe it and profit from it. But he does and has done, he has done miracles. It should not surprise us since there is this God of the spiritual realm. Jesus rose from the dead. And if one refuses to believe it, it's not due, friends, to a lack of evidence. You see... Jesus didn't just rise from the dead and then go back to heaven. Did you know that? The Bible tells us that he showed himself to people for 40 days. Nearly six weeks after he rose, Jesus showed himself alive. The Bible says after his suffering, he presented himself to the apostles and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. He showed himself alive and the apostles gave their lives for this claim That they saw him and ate with him and talked with him. You say, well, big deal. Those guys are all just delusional. Well, it is true that people sometimes give their lives for what they believe is true. But you know, they never do it for what they know is false. These guys would have known it was false. And yet all of them were willing to give their lives for it. But not just to his original first followers. The Bible tells us he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time and then adds this phrase, most of whom are still living. So at the time this is written, you can ask them. Not only did Jesus show himself alive to many people, the fact that we're remembering that on this day is itself a proof of the resurrection. You see, when Jesus walked the earth 2000 years ago, the day of worship was not Sunday. It was the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is Saturday, the seventh day of the week. But we're here on Sunday instead, the first day of the week. Why did that change? Why did that change? Here's why it changed. Because in all four of the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, we're told this, as in Matthew, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, 
two of the women went to look at the tomb. And what did they find there on that first Easter, that first resurrection day, on the first day of the week? An angel appeared to them and said to them, he is not here, he has risen, just as he said. The monumental change from Sabbath to Sunday worship took place because a monumental event occurred. Namely, Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. You have reasons to believe in Jesus. But secondly, I say in your outline, you have benefits if you believe in Jesus. You have reasons to believe and you have benefits if you do. The first is this. You have life after death. Verse 11, back in Romans 8. Verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, and I add he is if you believe in Jesus, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And we're told this in several places in Scripture, that there is coming a day that those who believe in Jesus and therefore have his spirit are going to be made alive with a new body, transformed. Philippians 3 tells us the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In the first part of your Bible, it's a prediction of the coming resurrection. And it speaks of the resurrection of those who do not believe and and those who do believe. It speaks of them as the righteous and the wise. And the prophet Daniel said this, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now here's the benefit of that for those who believe. The Christian always has something to look forward to in the future. And that gives hope and motivation even in difficulty in the present, as we'll see in a bit. And one of the things to which we look forward is a new body, one that does not break down and ultimately die. We are all in the process of breaking down. And I've become painfully aware of this in the last three months. I resolved at the turn of the new year to exercise So I started jogging on an indoor track. I was doing well, and then my knee started to hurt. I had to take three weeks off for something that had gone wrong with my meniscus and to take time for it to heal. I was advised to avoid the track with all of its turns. So about four weeks ago, I started on a treadmill. What can possibly go wrong on a treadmill? For three weeks, I was doing well, and then my shin started to hurt. It appears it's a shin splint. On a treadmill? You know, as soon as I turned 34, all of this started to happen. I know I don't look 34. Maybe not in the way you think I don't look it. All right, 54. Now I've got to take time for for that thing to heal. But by the time I get going again, there may well be something else wrong. And those things, a, a meniscus and a shin splint... They're all quite trivial to the many other ways our bodies are decaying with cancer, kidney failure, dementia, and on it goes. The verse says on the screen, though, that those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, like the stars forever and ever. One preacher has said, God created you with a body and he created you for his glory. 
Therefore, he is going to raise your mortal body, no matter how mangled or deformed or emaciated or disease ridden. And he's going to make it so strong, so healthy, so beautiful that when I see it, I will say you are like the broad blue sky on a bright summer day. You are like the splendor of a million stars against the black night of space. Your radiance is like the sun. Yes, in you I see the form and grandeur of the glory of Jesus Christ who made you, redeemed you, raised you, and glorified you with his glory forever and ever. There are benefits if you believe in Jesus. There is life after death, but I say in your outline. You have life before death. If you believe in Jesus, you know, we sometimes ask the question, is there life after death? (laughs) We really should be asking ourselves, is there life before death? What does it really matter and what will it matter? Verse 10 says, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And that's in the present, friends. We have power to live as we were intended to live now. The Spirit of God indwells you, giving you power over sin. It's not sinlessness, but power over sin. And not only do you have power, you have incentive to live now. You have incentive to really live now because you are guaranteed of a reward in heaven. Jesus told this story when he walked the earth. Jesus said, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you have a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You see, that gives me incentive to really live now. That gives me incentive to really live now in the midst of all the mess and all the difficulty and all of the body breaking down and all the emotional distress and all of the sin that I commit and is committed against me and in a fallen world and all of the trial that God in his sovereignty has assigned me so that through it I will become more and more like Jesus. I can go through all of that. I have incentive to do all of that because I know there's reward at the end. There's life before death and I have an incentive to live it now and live it to the full. The Bible says that of Jesus himself. It says he endured the cross, scorning its shame. But just before those words in that verse, it tells us why. Why did he endure the cross, scorning its shame? Here's why. For the joy set before him. He endured the cross. And for the joy set before us. We endure. What God has assigned to us. In this fallen world. And so I tell you in your take home truth. At the bottom of your outline. Jesus gave you physical life. And Jesus can give you spiritual life. And how do you get that spiritual life? You believe. And what do you believe? You already believe in God. Jesus is God. You believe who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So we're going to bow and pray in just a moment. 
And when we do, those of you who believe in Jesus, I encourage you to thank him for his grace in moving on you to cause you to believe. And those of you who have never believed, perhaps you came into this room as a scoffer, a denier, suppressing the truth that God has made evident to you. I pray that God's Holy Spirit is humbling you, humbling you. It's a humble thing for us to say, I've been wrong. I've been wrong about the most important issues. And realize in being wrong about God, that's sin. You're a sinner and you manifest that sin in a number of ways, as do I. Recognize that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And he rose showing that God the Father was pleased with the entirety of his life. His righteous life lived on your behalf and his death on the cross died even though we deserved it. Repent then. Repent means now I'm going to go in a new direction. I'm going to follow you with my life rather than go my own way. And you receive Jesus into your life. When we bow and pray in just a moment from your heart to God, you say to him, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I've denied you, if not with my lips, with my life. If I've not been a philosophical atheist, I've been a practical atheist. I ask you to forgive me. I believe Jesus is God. He's my Lord. I give my life to him. Let's bow together. Father, again, we thank you for this sacred time. And this opportunity to open your word and be reminded of the marvelous truth that the life-giving God has made us alive again who were dead in our sins. And because we've experienced the spiritual resurrection, one day we look forward to the physical resurrection of the body. Lord, we ask you, we ask you, because it is within your purview and yours alone, to move on the hearts of those who came into this room not having a relationship with you, not thinking about the importance of the one who made them and who redeemed them. We ask that you would draw them out of the world into yourself in this sacred moment. And we will praise and glorify you, our risen Lord. Lord, help us to go now this day and this week and every day in the knowledge that we can live because this is not all there is. We can truly live in the midst of all that you've assigned to us. And we can do so with joy because of what's yet to come. Lord, help us to do that in a way that brings glory and honor to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.